Blue, 42. Blue, 42. Omaha. Omaha. Set, hut. Well, Paul, that really looked like it's a first down for Spooner. All right, first down. Huddle up, huddle up. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Dan hosting once again. I am joined today by Becca Hibbert. Hello. And Dr. Melody Rubish. Hey. Uh, first off, before we get into today's uh, official topic, I, I do have to make an apology. I have to apologize to our dedicated listeners. I have to apologize to our last speaker, Jesse Ellis. Something happened. I have no idea what happened. I have troubleshooted and troubleshooted and troubleshooted, and I can't figure out. Our audio quality was less than stellar on our last episode, so I do apologize for that. I I can confirm that today's audio quality will be back to our normal high-level quality, so you do not have to suffer through another episode of poor quality. Uh, before, again, we get into our content, I do have to do a couple shout-outs to some dedicated listeners who have sent me kind words of affirmation, sent us a friendly email or a text message. So first and foremost, it's Joel from Colorado, Melissa from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Robbie from here in Phoenix, and Josh and TriStar Strength and Rehab out of East Tennessee. Um, thank you again for your loyalty and your dedication and, and your words of affirmation and encouragement. So um, with that, Becca, I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce our guest. Thank you. So we are so lucky to have our guest today. We're also extremely excited because she is coming back for the second year to speak at The Huddle, which is March 10th and 11th here in Phoenix. And believe me when I tell you, when she talked this year, everybody was absolutely quiet, taking about a million pages of notes because she absolutely blew all of our minds. So you are not going to uh, want to miss her when she is here in March, but we're also very lucky that she is going to talk with us today. So a little bit about Melody Rubish. She is a PMR sports medicine physician. She is the director of non-op sports medicine for Rothman Orthopedics in New York City. She is the president-elect of the Performing Arts Medical Association, and she serves as the medical director for the Rockets and Music Man and Funny Girl on Broadway. So, people, we are in great hands today. I mean, that, that might have to be one of the most exciting bios that I've heard in a long time, filled with things that's like, man, there's so many things in that bio that I have no idea about. So many questions. <laughs> Um, so Melody, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. I actually hope you don't mind if we start off with you just kind of telling us, how did you get into working with the professional performer? You know, as we talked, as Dan and I just said with your bio, I mean, you are doing a lot of things that you rarely see other individuals do in the sports medicine world. So we'd love to hear just a little bit about how you got into what you're doing now. I would love to tell you, thank you so much for having me. I really, and every time I get to hang out with you guys, it's a blast. And I love the quality of care you guys are giving and how you're kind of giving back and trying to make sure everybody has an idea of what's going on in the sports medicine world. So thanks for what you do. I really appreciate it. And I am so looking forward to March. I can't wait. We are too. <laughs> 
So I actually, so I did a physical medicine and rehabilitation residency, which is four years. The first year is internal medicine. And then the next three years is all orthopedics, biomechanics, neurology, uh, even some pediatrics, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury. It's really good uh, prep for being a sports medicine doc. And then I did a one-year sports medicine fellowship in Chicago. And the guy who was my mentor there was Terry Nicola, who he's a physician who uh, was big in terms of the running population. And so I got to understand biomechanics and specifically understanding vocabulary for sports-specific care. And while I was there, I was taking care of some college athletes. And then, you know, if you're treating a baseball player, it's totally different than if you're treating a volleyball player or a swimmer. So it's very different biomechanics and athletics, but it is still the bottom line is you have to understand how they do their sport and speak their language. And my background is in dance and performance, and I was never talented enough to make anything but i certainly had enough talent to realize where i didn't where i was falling flat so i can appreciate that in others and so i just kind of was able to reach out to some people and as you know you find one person and they realize that you know what you're doing and then they send their friends and their partners and their roommates and their whoever sitting next to them in the dressing room or the locker room so that's sort of how it started was taking care of them and this is also, it's always a team. There's a team of us that take care of anybody, whether whatever sport it is. So physical therapists, athletic trainers, coaches, they all talk too. So that kind of just word gets around and you get to start taking care of people. So it's been a lot of fun and every new show is like a new sport. So whether they have to wear corsets and headpieces or platform boots or have to climb up and down out of puppets, it's all kind of fun to figure out what their challenges are. I love that because I remember when you talked in March, one of the things that really blew all of our minds was you were talking about one show where they always have to jump in the same direction. So even if somebody is injured, it's not like you can say, okay, now jump off another foot. They have to continue with what they're doing. And like I said, what I loved is I looked down the line at the huddle and I saw all these people just scribbling a thousand notes. And I was curious <laughs> if throughout your time working with uh, professional performers, if you've ever had to advocate or defend for the fact that these are athletes, because I think it's in my opinion, the sports medicine world is just has kind of more recently come around to the fact that these individuals are athletes. And I'm kind of curious, like what you've seen or conversations you've had to have uh, to let people know how high level what these individuals do really is. Yes, you know, actually, I think the hardest thing is to convince them that they're athletes, these professional <laughs> performers. And, you know, they realize that they're athletic, but com- they're not competing for something. It's not a quantifiable score that you end up with. It's very qualitative. You know, it's very opinionated and there's talent involved. And so sometimes you have to convince them that they're athletes too. But it's actually funny because for the people that are watching uh, the performance, they can tell they're sweating, their, their makeup's running, all of that. It's funny, Disney and ESPN did, uh, they did a research study a few years ago, like five or six years ago, and it showed that Broadway dancers have an aerobic capacity on par with the world's top soccer players. And when they are running around stage, they travel farther than an NBA MVP averages in a single game. And keep in mind, like if you're thinking of a Broadway show, that's eight shows a week. Can you imagine asking an NBA player to, to play eight games a week? 
No. (laughs) They'd be like, I need to recover. Right. Okay. How about two on Wednesday and Sunday? You know? Yeah. (laughs) Matinee. And then you get one day off. Right. And so there's, you know, there's, there's certainly differences. Like there's a predictability to choreography, but not everybody hits their mark. Um, So you have to always be ready for things. So yeah, it's, it's similar where they've specialized in a sport, but they, they really have to not just be able to do their job, but they have to look pretty doing it, sound good while they're doing it. It's, it, there's an aesthetic involved. So I think it's a very interesting sport for people to do. So I want to kind of, I mean, one, that I, I'm not really surprised being a fan of Broadway. And luckily enough, in, in my life, I was exposed to that as a young individual and, and, and have a great appreciation. So hearing that, it really doesn't surprise me, especially when you think of certain, especially The Lion King and how dramatic and movement-based that is. But I want to go back to what you hit, hit on about eight shows a week and some strategies that you and your team take to keep these professional performers healthy to be able to perform again because like what you mentioned at at the huddle this year was the costumes are created for that person so how how do you guys manage and juggle that across the the busyness of a broadway show yes and i actually think that's i can take some of the experiences that i have working with other professional groups like i have the privilege of working with u.s soccer being one of their team physicians and they are incredible with their sports science department and i try to work with the performers and say what is your recovery drink what is your dynamic warm-up how are you getting ready for this sports specific role that's like super lower lower extremity or do you do a lot of lifts and we need to work on your shoulders so it's a lot of how are you fitting in your workouts around this are you starting a two-show day you've already gone to the gym and you maxed out you have to talk to them about how are they using their bodies not just when they're on stage but off stage too and for eight shows that math doesn't work out right you don't just do one show a week so you have to take a day off and some shows particularly Broadway shows, uh, will do five shows in three days. So they'll do one show Friday night, two shows Saturday, and two shows Sunday. And if the Friday night show starts at seven or eight and the last Sunday show starts at like six or seven, they're essentially doing five shows in 52 or 53 hours, which each Broadway show, an average Broadway show is two hours and 45 minutes. So it's super long. So that the nutrition is important. The hydration is important. Um, the active recovery, the dynamic warm up, making sure that you're not cooling down too much between shows if you have two show days. Um, but that's how you build your team. So a lot of these patients are performers. They don't necessarily have access to everything, but they could. Some, some people have a backstage PT or a physical therapist or an athletic trainer who can help get them taped up if they're dealing with a nagging injury because they don't want, you can't say, okay, t- take two weeks off and see how you feel. That's, that's two full shows with some, some shows, you know, that they miss an entire town in a tour if they do that. So trying to keep them on stage while not aggravating injuries or not exacerbating some nagging things is a very real issue. So, and you know, most people have been in multiple shows, so they might carry over some issues. So yeah, it's a lot about working smarter, not just harder to make sure that they can do their job and do it well and feel good and be able to do it for years. I love to see like teenage 
kids who are getting into things and trying to get into the profession because imagine how you can change their biomechanics when they're 15 as opposed to seeing somebody who's 65 or 75 and might already have some degeneration. So it's uh, it's an interesting challenge to try to take on. Well, and it sounds like I think a lot of our jobs are this way too, but you know, it's a lot of education on your part as well. Like you said, to be educating these individuals as far as, especially if you're trying to not convince them, but you're letting them know, I mean, you are in a lot of ways working harder than some of the athletes that we would typically think of. So then you're trying to educate them on how to best take care of themselves. I'm just curious if, you know, we've seen, you talked about recovery and we see a lot with, especially, um, you know, professional sports, even in the D1 setting, they're starting to kind of latch on to that a little bit more. They're providing some of that stuff in house. Has that made it to the performance stages yet? Are they, are there recovery places for them even within their, um, like where their shows are? Um, not so much. Like it's, it's not like they have like a, an ice bath in every locker room. But some do. So uh, we do work with some shows and some productions that have in-house complete teams. So they they do have a pregame and a postgame and uh, like a half hour call, all of that. But it's not it's not as though, um, you know, like when I used to do Division One athletics, all of the sports came in kind of to the same area where the athletic trainers and the physical therapists and the massage therapists all were, and they could kind of come in and out. And because of the theater environment, it's not the same. So it does, it is sort of a little bit differentiated. So they have to kind of, we have to create their own team, Uh, but people are kind of close geographically. So they can go to physical therapy before the show, or they can go get acupuncture, you know, in between that kind of thing. And then you just have to build their team and figure out what helps them and what doesn't, because what helps one person in the track, their understudy might need a totally different approach to their body because maybe the, uh, maybe the person who's in the role is hypermobile. And so we need to work on stability and activation and endurance, whereas their understudy might be super tight and actually need to work on mobility and flexibility. So it's a totally different approach depending on who's on stage and who's in what track and what they're doing that day. Well, what I appreciate about what you just said is it's no different than for our general listeners, every single patient that they're working with every single day and that approach of making it unique and specific to their needs and understanding if somebody is hypermobile, how we help them to be successful in our clinic, but outside of the clinic as well, or vice versa. Like you said, somebody that's tight and needs extra mobility and the dedication to that mobility and, and my thought process goes, and this is kind of where my question is heading is from managing that at your level with the cast sizes that you have and the differentiation of body types and demands, can you talk to us a little bit about like your greatest success in navigating that level of complexity and like what you love about navigating that level of complexity day in and day out? Yes. So I, you're absolutely right. And Rebecca, you commented on something too, how it's about education. So it's not just about figuring out what's wrong. You know, like 
as a physician, usually by the time they come to me, they want to know what their diagnosis is, but that's the easy part. Like if you know your anatomy, you know your exam skills, you can figure out what's broken. The question is, why did they break? And then let's help, let's figure out how they, how to get them to heal as quickly as possible while still in the show, if that's realistic. And then to keep them from breaking down again, that's kind of where the art of the science kicks in. And so, like you said, with I'm sorry, what was your question, Dan? I forgot. <laughs> Just like, you know, when you go, when you think about your day every single day and managing all the things that you manage, what's the thing that you like? It, it just brings you energy and excitement. You're like, this is why I continue to do this every single day. Oh, yeah. I think it's the education component. So when you are trying to help somebody and they're sort of a passive, they're a passive participant in their care. Sometimes it's hard, right? You want them to take ownership. So I spend a lot of time educating them. I show them their anatomy and I like to work with a medical team that does the same because I think when you empower somebody, an athlete, a professional performer, anybody who takes ownership of their body, essentially everything we're doing is based on the data they give us, right? It's the symptoms that they're telling us, like, does it hurt here? When does it bother you? How does this feel? And if we can improve the data that they give to us, then our output is going to is going to also improve. So giving them that sort of body autonomy and insight, I think it you are changing their life, you're changing their career, you're changing their longevity. And when you see somebody get it and their eyes light up and they smile or they say, you know, I've been searching for this or they, I was hoping to have something like this. It makes you feel really good because it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of light nights. It's a lot of weekends. It's a lot of answering calls and trying to figure things out. And when you see that person on stage or in a parade or on television and they're doing what they love to do and they're making their job is to entertain people and make them happy. And you played a small role in that, but a significant role. It Like I get goosebumps talking about it because it's sort of what we want to do, right? You you don't really get paid as much as you should for all of the things that you do, but gosh, it makes you feel amazing to know that you're really making a big difference, not just in that person's life, but the people that are watching them and enjoying them too. I just, I think that's a great ripple effect. Becca and I are both shaking our heads. Yes. Like we, I, I, we, we, can agree. To- <laughs> we can totally hear and hear that passion in your voice. And I think in our roles as well, we would say it's it's something very similar. And I think that the message that I really want our, our listeners to think about is the the time that they take on the education and the purpose and the intent that they have. And they're not just educating to educate, but they're educating to transform and, and assist with, like you said, the longevity of that person throughout the rest of their life, whether it's involved in a, a professional task or just the, the, the monotony of daily life. So I appreciate that insight for certain. Yeah. Isn't it funny when it's nothing is like an overnight fix with this, right? Like very seldom are you like, okay, I'm just going to put you back into place or I'm just going to move this and you're never going to have this problem again. So it is a bit of a journey, but we're also on that journey And the more time we dedicate to taking care of people, you see that, like you see people who might have some potential and skill as a PT or an AT or a physician. And then even though they're young or new, when they spend that time over months, over years, over their career, they become so much better. They're next level. You're like, where can I find you or else? And you're like, this person is dedicated so many years to it. You can't just 
stainless steel. It's it's something that has become ingrained and inherent to them. Right. I really appreciate you saying that. And I really want everybody to hear that who often asks us, you know, how do you get into sports medicine? Um, Because it does take that time and it is about building those relationships and making sure that you're really valuing what you're bringing to the athlete and understanding that it will all take time. It's, I wish it were easy fixes. And if it was God, we'd all be rich because we would have figured that out. But usually it's not, um, because they're master compensators. And so the fix is a lot harder. If you don't mind just speaking a little bit to the fact, I loved how you were saying, you know, not that the exam part is easy, but it, to a point it is, uh, but it's fixing, all the things that brought them in, what is the problem? How do you guys work as a team, physician, PT, AT, whoever else it is, how do you guys communicate and work as a team to make sure that you're all on the same page as you kind of go through that process of figuring out what's behind the injury and how to get the um, athlete back? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So usually I think it's a lot to ask an athlete or a professional performer to to be the person who is interpreting their symptoms and giving you all of the history. So I usually am not the first medical person who has seen them just because of the nature of the level that the people that I treat are. They have a physical therapist or athletic trainer or a massage therapist or an acupuncturist who has said, you need to go see a physician. I want you to see Dr. Rubish. And I prefer to hear from that person before I see the patient in clinic because by the time they get to me, they've had time to be in their thoughts. They've had time to walk around in their body and get compensatory behaviors. And so they're like, oh, yeah, no, I know my neck was hurting, but now it's my elbow. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, the elbow is, is was not what you were, was originally bothering you. So I usually like to hear that professional opinion. And then the other thing is I like to try to make sure that we're consistent. So especially when you get when you find people who have access to a lot of caregivers, then they're sometimes kind of shopping around and they're they're looking for consistency. They're looking for people who might not be saying the same thing. So I want to make sure that I'm respectful of the people who were backstage and saw the initial injury before they got really swollen or unstable. And they might say, yeah, there you know, there was a positive anterior drawer initially. Or, you know, I was more worried about a patellar dislocation because that person might be like, oh, my ankle hurt. I had a patient um, who they were they were coming in for an ankle sprain and the PT said, you know, based on what the mechanism of injury, I'm worried about their knee. And the, the, the performer did not even mention their knee, but because the physical therapist had told me, hey, I'm worried about their knee, I was making sure that we got x-rays of that. And actually, the person had an ACL tear and a meniscus tear. And so, yes, they had an ankle injury, but they had a knee instability that needed to be addressed before they were going to be able to go back on stage. And so that insight and kind of like having each other's backs I think is what creates that next level of care because you don't have to feel like you do everything. You're not the only person that's taking care of them. And then like as a physician, I see them once and then I send them to work and the people who are doing the actual work need to know what I'm thinking. So I try to give them a call back and say, here, here's what I was thinking. Here's what I saw. I'd really like you to take a closer look at that. Let me know if this gets, if once you loosen that up, that if they seem unstable, I'll bring them back faster. We'll talk about advanced imaging. And then I don't feel, have to feel like I have to accomplish everything in a single, in a single visit. Well, and I love that because none of us can accomplish everything. And <laughs> right. we it's all not realistic. Yeah. And we all, 
have our expertise in certain areas. And if we're willing to kind of open up to the other people that the athlete is working with, what we'll find is how much better the care for the athlete is because we're relying on other people's expertise and ourselves and then bringing that together. So um, thank you so much for just what you said about that. I think it's really important for everybody to understand how much we need to be communicating and collaborating with the other people that the athletes are working with. Yeah, and you appreciate that. And also, I think that that you need it's a good reminder to stay humble, too, because it's not if but when somebody's going to catch something that you missed and yeah. you'll be very appreciative. And it also reminds us to be gracious when we catch things that other people miss, because, you know, you're probably you get that where you're a third or a fourth opinion and you have a lot more data to collate than the first person. So they'll be like, I can't believe that person missed it. Well, maybe maybe that wasn't what was going on at the time or maybe they didn't have everything you did. So to make sure that we're kind of keeping an eye out for each other and not thinking that like we're the only person that can do this job, but we're all working together. Well, I really appreciate that last point, especially when you are the third, fourth, fifth person that 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 patient has seen that you do take into consideration all the work that was done ahead of time and, and assisting with unlocking additional levels of awareness in the patient that may they be like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Like that physician did talk about my neck and maybe it wasn't just coming from my elbow. And then my therapist did this, this, and this, and it's only a little bit better, but you know, they figured out there was something wrong with my first rib and just that ability to say, you know what? Yeah. While I might've been the person at the, the fifth or the sixth set of eyes is like, Oh, this is really what you need. You can't discredit all of the work that was done ahead of time. So I think that's another golden nugget you provided our listeners because it is not uncommon for patients to land on our tables that have seen three, four or five other physical therapists. And they're like, well, how come you're the person that got me better? And it's like, well, because I'm relying on all of that, like you said, that data that has been gathered from everybody that has seen you previously. And now I'm just kind of finding that last jigsaw piece that, that fits to, to help you feel and move better. I do think that um, sometimes it's hard to kind of be an expert in everything, but I do find with the professional performers, there are certain medications that they shouldn't take if they're also vocalists. If they're a dancer and a vocalist, we try to avoid some medications. If they're hypermobile, we try to avoid others. So I just, there is a skill and a learning thing that happens with all of that. So there are different resources that if people are interested in getting more information, I know that you guys have that amazing huddle conference that is in March in Phoenix. And then there's the Performing Arts Medicine Association. They have a yearly, uh, they have a yearly symposium. It's in New York in July, 2023. And IADAMS is the International Association for Dance Medicine. All of these are interdisciplinary groups. So if you are interested in learning more about um, taking care of performing artists, there are good starts, as well as Dance USA. We have a task force for dancer health. So there are definitely uh, resources available. Thank you so much for providing that. Because like you said, I mean, there's so much, like once again, when you talked at the huddle this year, the things that you mentioned that you don't even think about because I've, I've never worked with a vocalist. So why would I take into consideration some things that I need to be taking into consideration? So definitely going to hop on that and say, if you are interested or you are currently working with these types of athletes, please connect with the resources that uh, Dr. Rubish just gave us so that you can learn more and make sure that you're taking 
the best care of the athletes that you can. And if you have questions, you probably find the answers at some of these resources as well. So we want to thank you again, Dr. Rubish, for being here today. We are so excited to see you March 10th and 11th uh, for you to just probably blow our minds again with what you bring. Uh, And we cannot thank you enough for taking time today and talking with us about uh, the professional performer. It's so awesome what you do. Is there a place that people can find you uh, whether social media or, or any other way you'd like to for them to reach out to you. Uh, yes, I am on. I'm on Instagram. I'm just my first and last name, which is a hard one. So I don't know. Should do you spell things out on? You you can you can spell I? it absolutely. <laughs> it's M E L O D Y, and my last name is H R U B as in boy, E S as in Sam. So Melody Rubish, that's it at, at Instagram. And that's a good way to reach out if you need me. I think that's, I think Becca, didn't you slide into my DMs once? I think you, I think she did. I think you might've told a story about that at the huddle that kind of made the, the floor, the, the, the crowd just roll out of their chairs laughing. I, I sure did. And I have no regrets. Um, and let me just tell you, if you want to be wildly jealous of the Broadway shows that she either gets to see or definitely is a part of, uh, please follow her on Instagram. Instagram so you can you know just on a Friday night feel a little bad about yourself but also be like this woman oh, come on this woman is awesome <laughs> well again thank you all very right much. well this was this was a lot of fun I it was an honor and a privilege to get to talk to you guys I, I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing if I can help in any other way you let me know awesome well thank you we look forward to seeing you in March in warm sunny Phoenix Uh, As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or feedback, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 